Hello. Passionate about sustainability, energy, and climate? You're in the right place. Welcome to Energetic. I'm Maureen Cornelis, and together we will engage with people who dedicate their lives to climate justice and making a just energy transition happen. They may be activists, scientists, policymakers, or other enthusiasts just like you. Let the life stories and insights inspire you to build a better future for people and the planet. Welcome to Energetic. Today, I have the pleasure to host Professor Lucy Middlemiss. Professor Middlemiss is Professor of Environment and Society in the Sustainability Research Institute at the University of Leeds in the UK. She wrote the first textbook on sustainable consumption and has many research interests, including on sustainable consumption, energy poverty, and the participation in sustainable development. Her research bridges the gaps between energy consumption in daily life, planning, measuring, monitoring, and decision-making. Lucy, what I found really interesting in your academic journey is that you kind of shifted from analyzing sustainable consumption to lived experience and ways to overcome energy poverty. Do you think energy poverty is an unsustainable consumption pattern somehow? Yes, I think so. And in fact, that's kind of why my journey came about. So I'd say that my interest in sustainable consumption in the first place is has often been around who gets access to environmental practices because people have different cultures, traditions, expectations, beliefs, but also abilities. And for me, that I have a sort of conviction that in order to do a transition to net zero, for instance, we have to be able to do this in ways that suit a diversity of needs. So we have to, in, in effect, have a number of different forms of environmentalism to allow different people to access this agenda. And that's always been a very strong conviction for me. And about 10 years ago, I started looking at energy poverty as a sort of form of underconsumption. So um, it's unsustainable consumption because it's people underconsuming and as a result becoming unhealthy, suffering social economic consequences. And I would say that when we think about uh, a transition to net zero or, or the energy transition, however you want to call it, we really need to be aware of the distributional implications of, of decision making around this and to know that we're not starting from a level playing field. So understanding energy poverty is really critical, I think, in thinking about environmental futures, knowing that People have different needs, they have different expectations, but also that there is a, a current unsustainable form of consumption going on under consumption of energy, which really needs some form of resolution as part of that transition to net zero. I've also noted that uh, the solutions presented against climate change or for the energy transition often lack this kind of inclusive, broad approach and are very much, let's say, one size fits all. How can we? overcome this. Absolutely. And I mean, the one size I think is white, middle class, able-bodied. And so many of the solutions put forward around this one size, as you put it, are sort of flavoured white, middle class and able-bodied. And as a result, um, they're exclusive, actually. They're excluding people from feeling like they have a space on, in this agenda. So there's a combination of, of needing to include people 
And we need to include everyone in a transition to net zero. I mean, everyone has to feel like they have a stake in it, but also recognising that we have very different starting points. And as a result, we need to take take those into account. So advising an energy poor household to reduce energy consumption can be really risky if their energy consumption is already extremely low. Indeed. If we look at the sustainable solutions proposed, uh, many seem rather pricey and high-end. For instance, energy-efficient appliances or gadgets that would enable you to monitor your energy consumption. Or for instance, organic products or even vegan options. How can we make sure that the people who can't afford this kind of uh, pricey options are not overburdened by guilt for something they they are totally not responsible of. Yeah, I mean, one thing to say first is that when you look at the sort of level of environmental impact across society, there's a really clear correlation between income and impact. And what that means is that low-income households have less impact <laughs> than high-income households. And it's because they consume less. And I think in the work we've we've done recently on disability, that's also holds true. Disabled people earn less on average and therefore their impact is less on average also. So it's really important to know that because I think often the environmental solutions are associated with middle class lifestyles. So we think of owning solar panels, eating organic food. These, these are expensive options. But in reality, probably the most effective from an environmental point of view is is not consuming or consuming less. And um, while that can have, you know, that can be problematic as well because it can have de detrimental consequences for people, there is still a really important message in there that when people consume less, they have less impact. So some of the sort of the grandstanding, as it were, around middle-class lifestyles, middle-class environmentalist lifestyles is, is really problematic. It's, it's just not true. The reality is you can have solar panels, but if you're regularly flying, you, the likelihood is that your impacts are much higher than somebody on a lower income who inevitably is not. We mentioned a lot the concept of energy poverty in this podcast, but I assume many people don't know how different it is from generic poverty. You as an academic are one of the first uh, who truly took the time to explain the difference. So could you share your insights on this, please? Yeah, so I'm a little bit conflicted about articulating this difference in the sense that in the first place, there isn't that much of a difference in the sense that some, you know, most people who are income poor are also very likely to be energy poor. And in the lived experience, so in daily life, when people think about their own experiences of energy poverty, it's just a part of facing a broader income poverty. And it's one of the things that is difficult to afford effectively alongside other things like food or uh, travel and, and so on. But having said that, there is some real value in the concept. And, and for me, I think it's about engaging different kinds of stakeholders in talking about poverty and inequality. So particularly stakeholders in the energy field. In the energy field, which tends to be dominated by economists, by engineers, there is a tendency also not to think about social difference and inequality and, and, and poverty. And so one of the real values of this concept is to bring that conversation about people who earn less and can afford less into different spaces. And then I would say the second real value is that talking about energy poverty as opposed to just income poverty starts to reveal 
systemic inequalities that go beyond low incomes. So for instance, poor people have low incomes, but they also very frequently live in inefficient housing, often face inadequate transport infrastructure. And then as a result, they face different challenges in life. And so understanding that they are faced with these sort of more systemic differences is really important. I mean, I would say that, you know, most people living in inefficient housing will likely be relatively poor. There will be people living in inefficient housing that are rich, but at the same time, that's an, a really important kind of systemic difference um, that, that people face. So I guess there's a difference, but at the same time, there's a lot of overlaps and we need to kind of understand it in those terms. But opening up new conversations about poverty um, with energy stakeholders is really important part of the concept. You recently published an article on the experience of disabled people and the environment, uh, their impact on the environment. It kind of uh, struck me that you decided to use this uh, identity first approach, uh, talking explicitly about disabled people and not people with disability. Can you explain what it is, how you feel this is empowering for the concerned communities? and how it relates to your personal experience? Yeah, so we use Identity First, disabled people, also disabled households. The Identity First language comes from the UK disabled activist community who start with disabled because they're owning the term disabled. In a way, they're using it as a positive identity for themselves. So talking about themselves as a disabled person. And there was a really strong steer from the UK disabled activist community use it in this way. I do recognise that that's not the same in all activist communities across the world, and it can be different in, in different cultures. I think in the US, they're more keen on person with a disability. But person with a disability implies that the disability belongs to the person, right? So the person owns that disability, whereas disabled person fits much better with the social model of disability. The social model of disability is a sort of way of thinking about disability, which is to say that society disables people. So society, the reason that people are disabled are because they live in a society which is disabling. And I think calling yourself a disabled person implies this in the sense that you're, you're effectively saying, I'm disabled because I'm disabled by the society that I live in. Social model of disability is really important because it's a political statement, right, to say that society is disabling you. But I also think it's really interesting for environment and for energy poverty research to have this way of thinking. Effectively, it's kind of pointing out those structural barriers to inclusion. Just in, in saying disabled person, you're doing that. And I think um, when we think about inclusion and, and the barriers to inclusion in environmental and in energy agendas, which we've just been talking about, that's a really useful way of thinking. Talking about lived experience and basing a lot of your research agenda on this, like Elizabeth Blakelock did in one of the previous episodes of this podcast, did you yourself had some kind of, um, let's say, breakthrough moment when you realized that disability was not considered enough in the environmental agenda and in the sustainable consumption agenda and in the ways we project or we want to design the future for the best? 
Absolutely. And I mean, for me, the personal aspect of this is the disabled people in my life. (laughs) So my younger son is disabled and along with my husband, I'm his main carer. And my mum is also, she's become disabled in the last 10 years. And so seeing, particularly advocating for my son and, you know, given that I'm there in his everyday life, experiencing the challenges that, that we and he face in navigating the world is a really important motivator for getting this right and then also for creating a world in which disabled people can thrive and I think I mean that's very much a a motivation for the the research I do so I'm kind of an environmental and an energy researcher that and normally environmental and energy researchers don't really think about disability but because I'm thinking about it in my daily life it's been a really big uh, impetus for me to think well hang on a minute then what what's the situation with regards energy poverty and disability um, with regards other environmental issues and disability so uh, in the last well, my, my son's seven and, and in the last seven years, I've been thinking and, and writing much more about disability as a result. Disabilities are really, is really common, right? I mean, in the paper, we talk about one in four, one in five people experiencing disability. But in environment and energy literature, it doesn't get talked about as much as it should be. <laughs> Do you think the topic of a uh, just transition that uh, leaves no one behind is helping moving the lack of accessibility and inequality topics forward. I mean, as you said, the playing field is not level yet, and there is more and more awareness about this. But are you seeing a breakthrough moment or some improvements at least? Yeah, definitely. And and I mean, I would say that one of the things I find is that there's a lot of talk about inequality and equality in the future, particularly in environmental discourse, you know, we want a sustainable and more and fairer society. That's kind of what we're heading towards. But we also have to remember what the the playing field looks like now, and it isn't level. (laughs) We don't have a level playing field. And I think, I mean, that's one of the things that really comes out of our paper. The current distribution of energy is unfair to disabled people in the sense that they do not have as much access to energy, given that consuming energy is really central to a lot of of the opportunities that we have in life. I think this is really concerning, the levels of energy that are consumed by households which include a disabled person are considerably lower. And that means that they, they're not getting the same kind of opportunities. So there's that, there's the fact that the, that it's unfair, but it's also unfair in the present. So when we talk about the future, that it's even more of a concern because people are, just as energy poor households are less equipped to cope with the energy transition than our richer households, also disabled households are less equipped to, talk, to cope with the um, energy transition than and non-disabled households. And I think thinking about this is really, really important. Where are we now? What does that mean about how we can go forward? What kind of improvement have you noted in recent years? I mean, now the EU is aiming for broader objectives uh, regarding energy poverty. Is the same true for sustainable consumption and for addressing vulnerability as well? Well, I guess at the moment, I would say that the interest of of the EU in this agenda, in the energy poverty agenda, is is fantastic. It's really, um, it's grown from a a relatively limited interest only five years ago, really, (laughs) into into being something that is quite central, is a requirement in some energy reporting. And so I think that growth of the agenda in the EU is, is a real, is really fantastic. 
and that also applies, I suppose, into into in research because lots of people are lots more people are researching this than used to be researching this, and so we are finding more and more out about what is going on. And I think incorporating energy poverty in thinking about the energy transition is the first step, isn't it? In the sense that it's start it's a starting point to saying there are different households here who have different needs and different starting points, and we need to take those people into account. Our work on disability is even more nuanced than that, in the sense that it's saying, well, as well as being different households, as well as there being different households that are energy poor, there are also different households that are disabled and that adds a different level of need. It's an intersectional issue in the sense that, you know, if you're disabled, the likelihood is you're on average, you're earning less. And as a result, you know, you're, you're facing uh, double problems in that sense. Getting the, the EU to this next level <laughs> is quite important, I think. And then other governments around the world as well to be thinking about the sort of variety of needs, the variety of starting points, and then thinking about how then we make some kind of transition. And my research is very much around trying to kind of push on those agendas because the, those those variety of needs and starting points are really important in terms of how we get us out of the, the problems that we're in from an environmental perspective, I would say. I'd be really curious to know how you envision the future and in particular the links between health and energy poverty issues. As energy prices rise, should somehow energy poverty be considered a health outbreak? Well, certainly when we're facing the sort of gas price increases that we're facing, I mean, people are not in a great position right now after the, the next, you know, each each set of price rises is going to further entrench those problems. And I mean, there's a really clear evidence link between exposure to the cold, in particular in the Northern Europe, also in Southern Europe, and uh And resulting health conditions. So yes, absolutely, it is a health crisis, and it, it and the risk with these rising prices is that it it just becomes more entrenched, and more and more people are affected by it. I have two related questions now. Uh, the first is about the increasing energy prices that we are experiencing now in the winter of 2022. They are leading to higher prices in general and inflation. Have you had the chance to analyze if and how disabled people are more at risk of energy poverty or vulnerability in general? The second question is about uh, sustainable consumption versus high prices in general. Are we meant to stay in this situation? How could that impact consumption patterns in the long run? I definitely think there's a higher risk for Stable communities associated with the high energy prices, and the reason for that is when in our in our research we find that um, uh, disabled households consume energy differently, and in particular they consume similar amounts of energy for the sort of basic needs and services, so food, energy at home, water, and waste services. But what we worry about in that respect is that that probably is masking underconsumption, given that some forms of impairment result in people having additional needs for those things. So typically, if you don't move much, the likelihood is you need warmer a warmer home. You might need additional electricity for life-giving electrical equipment. You might also need um, additional hot water to be able to wash yourself more often. And given those things, the fact that 
the consumption of those energy at home is really similar for uh, disabled households as it is for non-disabled households, then that's quite concerning, really. So what I would imagine then is that as prices go up, the disabled households are, are likely to have to still potentially be under consuming or else be affected more severely given their lower incomes overall. So that that is a real a real concern I think. I mean another aspect of the the difference which I quite like to mention because I think it's really important of consumption there is is that disabled households have lower consumption of leisure services. Um, so for instance, a lower consumption of recreation, hotels, restaurants and travel, as well as lower consumption of mobility. And I think those things suggest that currently disabled ha- people have less access to the sort of fun and enjoyable aspects of consumption that, that we all have access to. Now, we've all had less access to those kinds of consumption through COVID, but the data we're looking at is pre-COVID and it suggests that Disabled people have long had less access to those opportunities, which I think is really, really sad, actually. And, and we need to be thinking about how do we redress this and how do we offer those opportunities or more of those opportunities in the future. But your second question was about oh, the, the, whether there'll be a crisis of consumption um, because of energy prices. What do you mean exactly by a crisis of consumption? Yeah, crisis of consumption. I mean, if prices increase in general, how sustainable can that be for everyday people? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it is a real, it is a, a crisis of, I, I suppose, yeah, I would call it a crisis of kind of living costs. <laughs> and then which then, resu- I can see what you mean now, results in a crisis of, of consumption in the sense that there's likely to be under consumption of a number of different products as a result of these these rises in prices and, and inflation of um, associated with other basic products. In terms of current research going on about that, I think there's, I mean, I think there's a lot of interest around what will happen as a result of gas prices increasing around the EU, particularly in the, the energy poverty community. And I know that there's some action to start to, to kind of track that and try and understand what the effects will be. But price is one of the drivers of poverty, right? And and um, living costs is one of the drivers of poverty. So these things will have an impact on the daily lives of, of people who are, are facing suddenly, you know, sometimes doubling of uh, gas prices and so on, that that really has a, a very substantial impact. I mean, really, I, I suppose it's about it's about the flexible costs in people's lives. And I say flexible a little bit carefully because, I mean, flexible suggests it's a choice, <laughs> whereas actually very often this is not about choice. It's just about what can I afford? And things like food and heating and um, electricity use and mobility are flexible in the sense that your rent is going to cost 600 euros, 1,000 euros, whatever the cost of, of living. And you have to pay that monthly. You don't really have a choice about paying the full amount of that. Whereas you can pay less on energy if you just restrict the use of it. And as a result, that flexibility is really worrying because, you know, the only really a rational response to the rise in cost of, of energy is to use less of it. And then as a result, we're, we're likely to see the knock-on health impacts in the coming years and and as well social social and economic impacts. I mean, the um, one of the things that we notice about 
energy poor for households is that winter really affects people's social lives, people not being able to invite people into their homes, not being able to go out because they can't afford to go out and 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 pay to be somewhere or pay to be in a cafe drinking coffee or whatever. And that that is really important then in turn for for mental health and coping really in a time it's been so challenging for anyone everyone anyway with covid and so on should policy and policymakers better acknowledge uh, the difference uh, in people uh, the different abilities the different capacities of the people uh, in order to enable our societies to become more resilient um, more inclusive and also better designed policies <laughs> well i think recognizing these differences in the first place, like recognizing that A, some people are currently not consuming enough and B, within that category, there are people that face different kinds of challenges. And so really understanding those those challenges and starting to, to go out and do something about them. I mean, I think those differences are recognized in different forms of policy, right? So in the UK, we have um, disability policy, which offers additional benefits to disabled households. But understanding the scope of that and the breadth of the challenges that the household face, which I think is really important in terms of thinking about a just transition. And I agree. So, I mean, the, the point about leisure services, there is a, a small amount of work done on this, uh, talking about people's ability to play and to, to enjoy themselves. But maybe also the, the other aspect of that is really understanding this energy problem as a holistic systemic problem that affects households in really broad and varying ways. So, you know, it might be restricting their ability to play and to, or, or to enjoy themselves. It might also be restricting their ability to fulfil some of the basic needs associated with heat, with washing one's, oneself um, and kind of getting a, a good grasp of the, the detail of that in order to be able to address it more thoroughly and to bring those people and those experiences into conversations about environmental futures is is really important in my view that's that's kind of where i am <laughs> and i'd like i'd like more people to be really well that's a lovely way to wrap things up thank you so much lucy middlemiss you sure know how to bridge the gaps between different uh, but equally important issues and make sure that consumption is sustainable for everyone whatever their background <laughs> thank you marina I strongly recommend our listeners to follow Lucy on Twitter as well. Her account is very informative and I promise it's quite jargon-free. Have a wonderful end of the day and see you soon. Thanks for listening to Energetic. I hope you enjoyed our deep dive into sustainability and the just energy transition with the most inspiring stakeholders. All links and resources are in the show notes. Don't forget to subscribe. And if you like this podcast, why not recommend it to a friend or a colleague? To continue the conversation, head on over to Twitter or LinkedIn. Thank you for lending your ears. That's all for this episode. Until next time.